This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode features part two of my conversation with Manish Raizada. Hello, my name is Manish Raizada. I'm a professor in the Department of Plant Agriculture at the University of Guelph. In this episode, Manish summarizes his lab's efforts to develop a microbe-based biopesticide that could be sprayed on crops like wheat and corn in order to protect those crops against fusarium wilt. Manish also describes the research of crop wild relatives as a key to gaining insights for biopesticide development, the potential for plant breeders to factor beneficial microbe relationships into their selection practices, and the regulatory hurdles involved in developing these new techniques. At last, it's the biopesticide episode you've been waiting for. So let's get into it. Talk to you in a bit. Manish, I would like at this point to move over to talking about biocontrols in the pesticide side of things. So I don't know where you want to start, but maybe maybe I could ask you to tell people a little bit about Organic Science Cluster and how that works and, and how you're participating in it. Sure. So the federal government tries to bring together um, groups of researchers from, uh, from different sectors um, to try to tackle, you know, different problems. And the organic science culture, uh, organic science cluster was was brought together by the Organic Federation of Canada out of Dalhousie University. And and they asked which researchers would like to participate and to try to tackle, you know, significant problems. And in the case of, of my laboratory, um, our objective here was to see if we could find microbes that could allow farmers to combat fusarium, particularly fusarium graminarium, which causes fusarium head blight in, in wheat, in gibberella ear rot, in corn. And uh, so we said, okay, this has been, a, it's an old problem. Right now, um, uh, crop breeding has, you know, has, ha, has been helpful, but it's not solved the problem. Um, fungicides uh, for conventional farmers have been helpful, but haven't solved the problem. Particularly in a in a real bad outbreak year, you get a lot of fusarium fungus, and 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 fusarium creates these deposits these mycotoxins in the grain, and it makes the grain, you know, um, it's hard to feed it to livestock without uh, without problems, and it's and if it gets into the food chain, it's damaging to humans. So, so you know, these problems are well known. People have been trying to look at the solutions. There's been lots of efforts around the world to try to find biocontrol agents, um, so microbes that can stop fusarium or its mycotoxins. So we said, okay, what can we do that's new um, to this challenge? And so we looked to say, we looked at, well, how do how does fusarium fungus get into wheat in the first place? Like, how does it get in? It gets into the grain head, and how does it get in? How does it spread? How does it get into corn? So in the case of wheat, it gets in through the little florets in the, in the wheat head, and then it travels through the stem that's called the rachis that holds the grain, and it travels through that. In the case of corn, it gets in through corn silks, and that ends up in the grain. So we said, okay, well, why don't we look to see um, if the plant naturally has microbes that live in those tissues at the entry point of fusarium into the plant and see if any of them could stop fusarium. And for this, we looked at really um, ancient um, relatives of wheat. We looked at um, um, wheat varieties that are 100 years old, even 100, 100, 150 years old in one case. We looked at ancient relatives of corn. And sure enough, 
we found out that, well, first the fundamental discovery, uh, let's say corn silks. It turns out corn silks have a microbiome. Like it has thousands of species of microbes in there. So next time you take silks off corn, realize and you know, you're actually throwing away a whole lot of microbes uh, that really turn out to be interesting. And same with the in, inside the wheat grain head and the rachis tissue. Turns out there's a whole microbiome there and it's fascinating. And sure enough, we were able to find some microbes that can stop or even kill fusarium. And so that's what's new that we brought to the table. And so we've taken these microbes now, we've gone to greenhouse trials, uh, and, and now we've gone into field trials. Uh, we had some promising results from last year's field trials, uh, and uh, we've gone into a second year of field trials, and uh, we're just analyzing the data now. Okay, so one, one quick question I have is, is was this a case where there is a, an effective synthetic fungicide that is being used and this is so this is a case of trying to replace it because it's easier on the environment or is this a, is this a problem where there isn't an effective synthetic pesticide so there are synthetic um, fungicides and there's a, a newer class of them they are they are pretty effective but when when there's a real bad outbreak year then the fungicide uh, is not sufficient so the plant still gets overwhelmed. Um, now, so we're what we're trying to do is say, okay, can we have a standalone biocontrol agent, or can we have a biocontrol agent that works with a fungicide? So that would be an integrative approach, integrated pest management approach. So we're trying both both things. I, I can't give you an answer right now. In our case, we work our biocontrol agents are bacterial. So we test, we make sure that a fungicide doesn't kill our bacteria, and it shouldn't because it's a fungicide, not a, an antibiotic. So in our case, we're trying to discover microbes that will work both for organic farmers as well as conventional farmers who might use fungicides. Right. And it's interesting to me that in both kind of major case studies in this conversation, first with the biofertilizers and now in this project, it seems to be that in both cases, you could point to just our our years and years and years of breeding as potentially having bred out the plant's ability to, to work with these these organisms. That's probably a little bit um, crude the way I put it, but but that that you know earlier relatives of these plants perhaps have these elements to their microbiome to help them. But in breeding for other characteristics, which have brought us like incredible growth in yields to, you know, among other things, we've we've lost them. And now we're trying to figure out how to how to get them back in. Yeah. So th w w what we have found in my own lab is that is sometimes the case. Um, as I mentioned in, in corn, it looks like modern breeding. We may have lost about half of the microbes. Now, we've also gained some microbes in our own discovery work. We have found that some of the ancient relatives, as I said, have been saying, um, have some beneficial microbes that we have lost. Having said that, we have also seen, though, in new crop varieties, there also can be some really beneficial microbes there. Um, I, I think in, in general, though, what, what we're realizing is that, well, actually, what my lab is trying to do is promote a new type of crop breeding. I've talked about, you know, we need to breed microbes. Um, I think now crop breeders need to select for beneficial microbiomes. So a lot of our work now, I've talked about, you know, spraying or coating seeds with individual microbes or even groups of microbes. 
But there is a whole microbiome there with hundreds or thousands of species. So now we're trying to develop the tools for breeders to say, okay, this looks this group of microbes, this microbiome looks like it can fight fusarium. And in fact, in our research, what we've identified is there's about about 10 to 20 microbes uh, that really help fight fusarium when they're together. Um, and so we're now trying to develop the tools um, so that a breeder can go in and just select for that healthy microbiome so that a farmer doesn't have to spray it on a plant. They're just so they're so so that way when you buy a seed, it has that healthy microbiome in the seed. And, and that that is um, a kind of a fundamental sort of a contribution that my lab made more than 10 years ago, which was demonstrating that microbiomes can be inherited in plants. Prior to that, it was really the prevailing thought was that most microbes that are inside a plant, the endophytes, are really just taken up from soil. And what we discovered is, in fact, there's a whole lot of microbes that are inherited through the seed. And then the rest are taken up from the soil. Um, but that discovery enables us to you know, go back to breeders and say, hey, you can maybe maybe breed or select for a whole healthy microbiome um, in the seed, at least as a starting point. So getting back to the organic science cluster research, where are you, where is your team at in terms of like, where are you at on this project? And uh, can you talk about mm -hmm. some, some results you've had so far? Yes. So I think the most exciting results are that um, we have now at least three microbes that we've discovered that are reducing uh Fusarium disease, and more, more, more importantly, the mycotoxins by um, at least 50%. Um, and this is in field trials. And so we're just waiting for the second year of field trials. And uh, with and, and if, if those results are, are as, as promising as we hope, then the then we're gonna um, you know then we're gonna start on the breeding process of that of, of the, let's say the most promising microbe. So we're, we're very excited that this has worked in the field under real field conditions. Um, and, and, and I think that is a breakthrough. They are all very safe microbes. Um, um, and, and so I, 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 you know, I, I was skeptical. I, I, I'm, I'm actually, even though my, this is my lab's focus to, you know, to try to find microbes that help farmers. I've been skeptical for 10 years whether or not we will find things that are actually working under field conditions. And in the past year, based on the field trial results we've had, I'm actually, I'm actually for the first time quite optimistic that we are going to see breakthroughs in this area. Um, but I think these are we always have to take a very um, systematic approach to these problems so that in the end, we have something that works under a lot of varieties and a lot of environments. And Manish, in this case, is the final is the final commercial potential commercial application thought to be via seed coating or via spraying the the crop? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I wish I could say it would be it was by seed coating. We're not there yet. We might be able to get that to work. Um, in our case, the microbes that we've discovered, we've discovered from tissues late reproductive tissues and so they are adapted to the to, to those late reproductive tissues which is when fusarium hits um, corn and wheat um, there's an advantage and disadvantage the advantage is that 
uh, and it's it's probably the reason why various biocontrol agents haven't worked before or haven't worked well before is that they were not naturally adapted to the time when fusarium comes in, which again is late in the growing season. So ours are, and they're actually adapted precisely to the tissues um, in which fusarium enters. So that's the advantage of our approach. So ours is a late season spray. But then the disadvantage, of course, is that it's a late season spray. And um, now, having said that, conventional farmers, they add fungicides late in the season as well. So we're not doing anything different from that. But of course, if we could get something where we could just add it onto the seed and it would persist late in the season and work well, that would be great. Um, that is a future objective where we would need more research funding to do that. Um, and, and it would probably require some, some breeding uh, on the microbial side to do something like that. Um, but but I, I hope one day we can get there. Hey, everyone. It's Jordan just quickly cutting in during editing to let you know that at this point in our conversation, uh, Manish and I were disconnected. And when I tried to get back on, it seemed like maybe the University of Guelph phone system was having technical difficulties. So we figured it out and he jumped over to his cell phone. And that is why he will sound a little bit different for the rest of this conversation. Okay, back to the interview. So Manish, uh, any other, you know, you've talked about where you're at in your research, but what about, what about, I didn't get on this with the biofertilizers, but let's just talk about the biopesticides in this, this research. Like, are there, are there barriers to getting this commercialized to market that you want to talk about? A really significant problem with um, biofungicides, biopesticides is on the regulatory side. You know, the, 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 in the case of these microbes, these microbes are typically inhibiting some life form. And so, of course, the worry is that they're going to, you know, damage humans or, or livestock or ecosystems because of that. So, so quite appropriately, then, they're, they're, it's much, they're, there's a lot more regulations compared to biofertilizers on, on getting one of these products to market. And, and there's a lot of cost and, and it takes a lot of time. Um, so, um, so that, that's a built-in barrier. And, and one of the challenges of, on regulations, this is both with biofertilizers and, and biopesticides and fungicides, is that um, different countries around the world have totally different rules. Um, and um, any new microbe has to be registered and approved and, and pass the regulatory standards um, each, in each country. And so that really brings up the cost of these microbes. So I, I wish we had you know, more uniform standards around the world. Um, and, a, and a better process to do this. So it's a very significant barrier. And from your perspective, you know, as, as someone who studies this stuff, you know, is this, is, are you, do you more fall towards, you, you think that these concerns are and just an important reality of developing this technology? Or do you think concerns are more reflective of, of not understanding the science, you know, and, and possibly, you know, overblown? Um, so in general, I, I think we always have to err on the side of safety. So I, I think the rules are there for a purpose. What I would like to see just is more of a, um, a uniformity of those standards around the world um, so that for, for researchers or anyone interested in commercialization, they, they don't have to do this many, many times in different jurisdictions. So that's all I would like to see. I, I, I want to actually stringent rules in place. Um, because you know microbes microbes can be really damaging they can become crop pathogens a microbe that is beneficial to one crop variety 
can actually be a pathogen of a different species uh, of crop. Um, so we have to be very careful with these microbes. So I, I agree overall with the standards. I just want them to be uniform. So Manish, before before we finish our conversation, I'm I'm going to get away from the topic of 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 this episode and just just take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to someone with the knowledge that you have. As you were taking me through these topics, it had me thinking about you were you were describing challenges of of getting some of these organisms um, acclimatized to a specific farm ecosystem and actually like sticking around, and it had me thinking about a pretty common practice in organic agriculture, which is the use of compost tea. And I wonder if you happen mm -hmm. to have, I know you'll know what that is, but I'm wondering if you happen mm -hmm. to have any perspective or opinions on efficacy as it's commonly, as, as, as compost tea is commonly produced and, and applied. Yeah, look, I, I think um, compost teas are overall, you know, um, they're, they're really quite promising. And, you know, the essence of compost teas go back thousands of years in, in different cultures. Um, and the essence of it is um, you have this diversity of microbes um, that are there. And, you know, uh, it really builds on nature. As I mentioned earlier, within any plant, there is already a microbiome. And, and it's this diverse microbiome that really ends up being ends up competing against pathogens that might come in. So that diversity um, is what's key to combating, you know, disease and, and, and possibly even pests. So I think compost teas are, are building upon that concept and, and can work quite well, as well as adding some nutrients um, in apart from the microbial diversity. Um, and the nice thing is that if they're made from on-farm resources, uh, on farm on farm sources, those microbes presumably um, are already adapted to that environment, so that temperature, nutrient profile, etc. So, um, I, I, I think these are really really promising. Um, I think the concern always has to be um, again on safety. So then it depends how they're applied. If you apply it to something that you're going to eat directly, like a leafy green, okay, there there may be some safety concerns there. If you're applying it onto, you know, the base of a corn plant, th that seed is, is going to be safe still. You know, the, the plant's own microbiome will, will filter some of this out. So I think with that caveat in place, I think compost teas are really great. And so the other related question is just whether, to what extent you are a proponent of some of the emerging what do you think about gut health and the use and the introduction of probiotics and, and the and the science there? Is this something you're really enthusiastic about? Do you have an opinion at all? So I think um, in the area of gut health, the challenge has been there's some studies which are showing that when people take in probiotics, they're actually not having a big impact, a direct impact on the gut microbiome. Um, the gut microbiome seems to be somewhat, you know, formed and stable after after a few years of age. In the case of humans, now that that's really interesting because I mean I myself have benefited from probiotics, and so I, I you know I'm perplexed by the studies, and the studies are excellent studies. So, you know, um, so then you have to say, well, then how well, how are are these probiotics working? Um, you can understand why what the challenge is, right? When you take in a probiotic, you have to get past all the stomach acids. Um, you know, the, the stomach is really, really acidic and very harsh. Uh, 
So in a way, it makes sense that these probiotics are actually not getting into the intestine, um, into the intestinal system, which obviously comes after the stomach. So one thing, one thing that is really interesting, I think, is is the observation that, um, and it, it comes from the field of autoimmune disease. So, you know, we, we have a lot of autoimmune diseases right now, and, and that has to do with not being exposed properly to microbes early in life, right? We live in a too sterile of environment, uh, those of us who live in cities. So it, it, it could be that when, pe- when people take in probiotics, they're actually sort of keeping our own immune system a little bit busy so that it, it, it gets distracted from attacking it itself. It, it could be that that's part of the answer. I, I don't really know. Um, I, I think there is fortunately a lot of research and a lot of investment in the case of probiotics. And so that alone, I mean, there's so many fascinating, fascinating discoveries in this field. And so I, I do see it as a very exciting, promising field. Um, um, that I think will will pay huge dividends. You know, the overall thing I will say, bacteria existed on this planet two billion years. That's billion with a B. Two billion years before plants or animals or insects, any multicellular life form. So, you know, these higher life forms have been around for 1.8 billion years, but bacteria have been around for 4 billion years on this planet. That means bacteria had two billion years to evolve all sorts of clever strategies to acquire nutrients or, or combat enemies. And then on top of that, all these higher life forms evolved in, in this pre-existing diversity of microbes and no doubt took it, had to t- you know, could take advantage of it, probably had to take advantage of it. And I think sort of, if I could be philosophical for a second, we can't forget this basic evolution. And it tells me that there's a whole lot we don't know. Um, I could even argue that plants and animals were selected by microbes. You think about it in a, in a, from, a, from a, a, a bacteria living in a plant's perspective. You know, it could live out there in the soil or in the water and, you know, be subject to random chance. If a microbe, however, lives inside a plant, it can harvest huge amounts of sunlight take advantage of a huge root system to take up nutrients and water. So it brings up the question of, you know, who's really in control? Um, I would argue that microbes are much more in control than we give them credit for, which also means there's tremendous opportunity moving forward in terms of how we make agriculture more sustainable. Um, and it's perhaps using, taking advantage of, of 4 billion years of evolution. So Manish, before before we finish our conversation, I'm I'm going to get away from the topic of 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 this episode and just just take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to someone with the knowledge that you have. As you were taking me through these topics, it had me thinking about you were you were describing challenges of of getting some of these organisms um, acclimatized to a specific farm ecosystem and actually like sticking around, and it had me thinking about a pretty common practice in organic agriculture, which is the use of compost tea. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you happen to have, I know you'll know what that is, but I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you happen to have any perspective or opinions on efficacy as it's commonly, as, as, as compost tea is commonly produced and, and applied. Yeah, look, I, I think um, c- compost teas are overall, you know, um, they're, they're really quite promising. And, you know, the essence of compost teas go back thousands of years in, in different cultures. 
Um, and the essence of it is um, you have this diversity of microbes um, that are there. And, you know, uh, it really builds on nature. As I mentioned earlier, within any plant, there is already a microbiome. And, and it's this diverse microbiome that really ends up being ends up competing against pathogens that might come in. So that diversity um, is what's key to combating, you know, disease and, and, and possibly even pests. So I think compost teas are, are building upon that concept and, and can work quite well, as well as adding some nutrients um, in apart from the microbial diversity. Um, and the nice thing is that if they're made from on-farm resources, uh, on farm on farm sources, those microbes presumably um, are already adapted to that environment, so that temperature, nutrient profile, etc. So, um, I, I, I think these are really really promising. Um, I think the concern always has to be um, again on safety. So then it depends how they're applied. If you apply it to something that you're going to eat directly, like a leafy green, okay, there there may be some safety concerns there. If you're applying it onto, you know, the base of a corn plant, th that seed is, is going to be safe still. You know, the, the plant's own microbiome will, will filter some of this out. So I think with that caveat in place, I think compost teas are really great. And so the other related question is just whether, to what extent you are a proponent of some of the emerging what do you think about gut health and the use and the introduction of probiotics and, and the and the science there? Is this something you're really enthusiastic about? Do you have an opinion at all? So I think um, in the area of gut health, the challenge has been there's some studies which are showing that when people take in probiotics, they're actually not having a big impact, a direct impact on the gut microbiome. Um, the gut microbiome seems to be somewhat, you know, formed and stable after after a few years of age. In the case of humans, now that that's really interesting because I mean I myself have benefited from probiotics, and so I, I you know I'm perplexed by the studies, and the studies are excellent studies. So, you know, um, so then you have to say, well, then how well, how are are these probiotics working? Um, you can understand why what the challenge is, right? When you take in a probiotic, you have to get past all the stomach acids. Um, you know, the, the stomach is really, really acidic and very harsh. So in a way, it makes sense that these probiotics are actually not getting into the intestine, um, into the intestinal system, which obviously comes after the stomach. So one thing, one thing that is really interesting, I think, is, is the observation that, um, and it, it comes from the field of autoimmune disease. So, you know, we, we have a lot of autoimmune diseases right now, and, and that has to do with not being exposed properly to microbes early in life, right? We live in a too sterile of environment, uh, those of us who live in cities. So it, it, it could be that when, pe when people take in probiotics, they're actually sort of keeping our own immune system a little bit busy so that it, it, it gets distracted from attacking it itself. It, it could be that that's part of the answer. I, I don't really know. Um, I, I think there is fortunately a lot of research and a lot of investment in the case of probiotics. And so that alone, I mean, we're, there's so many fascinating, fascinating discoveries in this field. And so I, I do see it as a very exciting, promising field. Um, 
um, that I think will will pay huge dividends. You know, the overall thing I will say is is that bacteria existed on this planet two billion years. That's billion with a B, two billion years before plants or animals or insects, any multicellular life form. So, you know, these higher life forms have been around for 1.8 billion years, but bacteria have been around for 4 billion years on this planet. That means bacteria had 2 billion years to evolve all sorts of clever strategies to acquire nutrients or, or combat enemies. And then on top of that, all these higher life forms evolved in, in this pre-existing diversity of microbes and no doubt took it had to you know could take advantage of it probably had to take advantage of it and i think sort of if i could be philosophical for a second we can't forget this basic evolution and it tells me that there's a whole lot we don't know um i could even argue that plants and animals were selected by microbes you think about it in a in a from a from a, a, a bacteria living in a plant's perspective you know, it could live out there in the soil or in the water and, you know, be subject to random chance. If a microbe, however, lives inside a plant, it can harvest huge amounts of sunlight, take advantage of a huge root system to take up nutrients and water. So it brings up the question of, you know, who's really in control? Um, I would argue that microbes are much more in control than we give them credit for, which also means there's tremendous opportunity moving forward in terms of how we make agriculture more sustainable, um, and it's perhaps using taking advantage of, of four billion years of evolution. Anish Rosada, thank you so much for making the time for the conversation today. It has been really fascinating and illuminating, and I hope we can have you back on the show sometime in the future. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you. All right. That's all for now. Before I say goodbye, I want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode, and to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. Okay, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.